This is the word of God from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hey, well, good morning, Providence. How are you guys doing? Hey, look at this servant leadership right here. I spilled water coming up. We've got a pastor wiping it up. That's amazing. Can you guys clap for the man or something? Hey, well, thank you, Amanda, for reading. Uh, Like Andrew said earlier, um, we're in the core team phase of our church, which means uh, we're ramping up to a launch date in September. And this is kind of our preseason phase where we're aligning our hearts and our minds around what we're going to be doing, why we're planting a church, how we're planting a church, and to get a vision for where we're going and to figure out our mission. And that's exactly what we're doing uh, this week. And actually last week, last week we talked about our vision, and this week we're talking about our mission. So if you weren't here last week, uh, I, I, it's a, a little bit of a bad thing that you missed out because it's really a setup for this week. So Andrew, last week he opened the Bible for us and showed us that from Genesis all the way to Revelation that God had a vision. He, uh, he had a vision after the fall of man, after we rebelled against God, and after, after everything broke down, he had a vision uh, to make earth look more like heaven. And that's what he's pursuing. Uh, Andrew quoted from the Jesus Storybook Bible, another simpler way of saying it is to make everything sad become untrue. This is God's vision. A vision is essentially a, a preferred reality that we see out in the future. Or it's a destination that we'd like to get to someday. And for us as a church, uh, we get that, that vision from John, or excuse me, from Matthew chapter 6, uh, when Jesus prays the prayer that says that, um, that he prays that, that uh, his kingdom come, his earth would be done, or his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' vision is that the earth would look a little bit more like heaven. And as we've prayed as a church, we have realized that we want that vision for our church, that Omaha would look more like heaven. That's our vision statement in Omaha as it is in heaven. And as we say that, and it's Andrew's up here last week, some of us dreamers were getting all excited and we're like, yes, let's go do that. Let's make Omaha, let's make our whole world look like heaven. And then there's some of you more calculated people that are like, whoa, 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 let's pause this train a little bit. How exactly are we going to do that? That seems a little bit beyond us. How are we going to get there? Well, that's what a mission is for. And that's why we have a mission statement. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So if a vision is the destination that we're going to, a mission or a mission statement is the road that we're traveling to get there, okay? And so if we really want to see Omaha look like heaven, if that's our vision, the road, as we've prayed about this and as we've discerned, what do we think the road is to get there? We have come up with a mission statement that is this, making and sending disciples from Omaha to all nations, If we want to see Omaha and our world look like heaven, we have to be committed to making and sending disciples. Now, okay, how many of you have been on a mission trip before? A number of you? Okay, that's good. So you know what I'm talking about. So when you go there, you knew very clearly what your goal was, right? 
you were going with Jesus and the power of Jesus and you were going to share the gospel with some people and, and you had this very clear vision of what you're going to do. There was one mission trip that I went on that was way more impactful than any other trips I had been on. Uh, I'd gone to Africa before and I'd been to South America multiple times, but this one time I went to China and I was blown away when I was there because of the fact that relatively few people knew anything about Jesus. It was shocking to me. And so we went to, uh, on this trip, I was an intern in a college ministry, and somehow uh, the church entrusted four college, me with four college students to lead to China. I was completely unequipped, but I did it anyway. We went there, and we did this VBS in an orphanage. And so we were um, teaching them songs and stories and crafts and games and all this. And during this whole time we were there, we had a translator that came with us because we couldn't speak the language. And she was a 25-year-old girl. Her name was May. And the interesting thing about her being the translator for the Bible school is that she wasn't a Christian. And so she was translating all these Bible stories and all these things. And about five days into our trip, after everyone else had gone to lunch, I was kind of standing back and May was still there. And she said, Jared, um, so I know you guys say Jesus a lot and I've heard of the name Jesus before and I've seen you carry around a Bible before, but but I don't really know what it's about. I don't understand Jesus at all. Could you please explain it to me? Now, imagine if in that moment I would have said, you know what, May, I'm feeling a little exhausted. I'm kind of jonesing for some of those dumplings in the kitchen. So, so I'll take a rain check on that and I'll come back and explain it to you later. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Because this was an amazing opportunity. This was a privilege to be able to share with someone for the very first time the good news of Jesus Christ. What an amazing privilege. And as I shared that with her and I walked away from that conversation, uh, it hit me that there are one billion people in China. One-seventh of the world's population is there. And the majority of their stories are just like me. They don't know who Jesus is. And as I walked away, I had this gospel calling, this this gospel urgency to go and, and think, we got to start doing something. we got to start sharing Jesus with people. we got to start sending missionaries here. And as we left China, I prayed for China like crazy that, that following year, and so much so that we took another trip back to China the next year. It was 2009, and Gabe actually came with me. And we sensed that urgency and that calling some more. And the next year, uh, my internship was done, but we sent another team of students. And Andrew actually went uh, that next summer for six weeks to go to China to, to take the gospel to the people of China. Now, I don't think anyone in here would argue with the fact that taking the gospel to China is a worthy cause, right? But my question is, do we have that same kind of burden for our own city Do we have that gospel clarity, that gospel urgency for our own backyard? As we think about the fact that in Omaha, there are approximately probably 600,000 people who don't know Jesus. There's violence happening all over the place. There's poverty in our city. There are broken marriages and hurting families. So today... We're going to look at Matthew 28, and this is going to be a familiar passage to a lot of you, but one that you can never overlook or or move past. We're going to look at Jesus' great commission to his disciples to make and send disciples, to go make and send disciples. And my hope for us this morning is that as we walk out of here, that all of us collectively would have a burden for, for making and sending disciples, a gospel urgency, if you will. Because if we don't, if, if we don't have this gospel urgency, as we plant this church, we're going to slowly become inward focused. We're going to care more about ourselves than anything out there. 
We're going to start caring more about being the place to be and being a a cool, comfortable church than, than actually being a church that's aligned with the mission of God. We're going to care more about insiders than outsiders. We're going to lose our sense of calling to bring the gospel to our city. And I don't know about you, but if we're here to plant a church, let's try to see our city and our world look a little bit more like heaven. Amen? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And and as we talk about the challenges of disciple-making, Matthew 28 is going to speak some truth into us. And first of all, it's going to challenge us that we need to grow in confidence because we have a great Savior. And then it's going to challenge us to grow in intentionality. So we're going to grow in our confidence, or we need to grow in our confidence in Jesus, because he's the king, and he's in charge. Then we're going to grow in our intentionality because the reality is is that we are God's plan A for making disciples on this earth. So let's dive in. The the first point for today is to grow in confidence in Jesus. So I want to read through verses 16 through 18 again. You can follow along. Matthew 28, 16 through 18. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I want you to think of the scene here. So this is resurrected Jesus. He was dead. Now he's alive. He's appeared to these guys uh, maybe two or three times at this point. And, and, and these disciples, because Jesus warned them, they know that he's going away. He's going to be gone. He's going to leave them. And, and, and he's going to give them some marching orders. He's going to tell them what they're supposed to do as far as carrying out his mission. And I want us to pause for a second and think about the outrageousness of this moment. Like, consider the fact that these are 11 men. They're relatively normal. Uh, they're, they're somewhat uneducated. And, and these guys, these 11 people were supposed to take over the world. They were supposed to change the entire world. They were nothing spectacular. They didn't have an army with them. They didn't have a bunch of money. They didn't have hardly any money. They didn't have any ends with the powers of the day, but they were supposed to change the world, take over the world. There is nothing about this that makes sense. Like if there were odds makers in Vegas betting on them, everyone would be betting on the disciples to lose. There's no way that they can carry this out on their own. And if they are indeed going to change the world in this moment, there is one primary message that they need to hear from one person. And that's their Savior, their leader, their Lord, their God. Say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, before they were going to do anything, they needed to believe. Their confidence needed to grow in him. And these verses, in, in talking about all authority given, given to Jesus, uh, some of these disciples in this moment may have recognized that this was a prophecy that was being fulfilled right in front of them. In Daniel 7.14, it says this, speaking of the Son of Man, who's a reference to Jesus. Daniel 7.14 says, And to him, and to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the disciples and the Jewish people knew of one coming. They knew of one coming that would be crowned king, and this 
king was going to be crowned, and he was going to be crowned forever. And the kingdom that he was bringing was not like the earthly kingdoms that were going to, th- that were going to fall, but it was going to be a kingdom that was going to last forever and ever, and it was never going to fail. And eventually, everyone would come under the rule of this king, and as the resurrected Jesus stood in front of these disciples, he was making the claim that, I am that king, and I am starting this kingdom Right now, he controls it all. He owns it all. And one day, everyone will bow at his feet. And now he has defeated sin and death through his own death and resurrection. And this unstoppable kingdom is starting. And it's going to be on a roll. And the king is about to give his orders. This truth has been encouraging to me as I think about my own mission field. You see, my wife and I, we, uh, we pray a lot for our neighbors, and we want to see them come to faith. And just the other day, uh, I've just been praying that God would give me an opportunity to actually share the gospel, or maybe I just need to do it. But uh, the other day, my, my neighbor came over to our yard, and I all of a sudden thought, oh man, I've been praying for an opportunity. Is this the opportunity? Uh, am I going to share Jesus or not? My heart started, started pounding really fast. I thought, okay, wait, Jared, Jesus has all authority. He knows all the answers. He has started an unstoppable kingdom. He has the power over everything. And I needed to hear in my nervous, anxious state, in this weakened state, that I am a child of the king whose power never ends. My confidence needed to grow in him. It needed to grow in him. And I'm thinking... There's probably some of us or all of us in here who our confidence needs to grow in Jesus. So if you this morning find yourself in a weakened or anxious or nervous state, I want you to hear a little bit about Jesus' authority. So I stumbled across um, a list that, that author and pastor John Piper created. And I pared down the list because he tends to be long-winded. But I pared down this list to seven things that I'm going to roll through. Reasons are the ways that Jesus has authority. So I'm going to go through these quickly. Ready? The first is that he has authority in that he has created everything. John 1.3 says all things were made through him. Number two, he has authority in that he sustains everything. Colossians 1.17 says he holds everything together. Number three, he has authority over Satan and demons. Mark 1.27 says he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Number four, he has authority over disease. The disciples would have seen it firsthand again and again and again. Jesus heals disease, cleanses people. Number five, we see his authority in that he has power over death. He was a living, breathing example right in front of them that death can't hold him down. And it's a forerunner of the fact that, that, that he has power over our death and our resurrection as well. Number six, he has authority over sin. 1 Corinthians 15.57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this victory is over sin and death as he's talking about. And seventh and lastly, Jesus has authority over the mission of the church. Matthew 16.18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Providence, can we do ourselves a favor? And if you're anxious and you're fearful here this morning, if you lack faith that God can move, if you're unsure if you can share the gospel with your neighbor, if you're unsure that God can use our little church to impact a city or impact the world, can we remember verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And on a bigger scale, Providence, as we dream about uh, seeing 
doctors and international students at UNO come to faith, as we dream about sending out uh, Andrew and Jordan as our college staff to go see a movement happen on UNO's campus, as we think about in the future maybe sending missionaries across the globe, as we think about planting new churches in our own backyard and hopefully across the country and across the globe, we need to be reminded that we are citizens of of a kingdom that is owned and governed by the king of it all. So let us not lack confidence. If God can use 11 uneducated men to change the world, he can use our church to make and send disciples from Omaha to all nations, right? So let's grow our confidence in our Savior. So the next step, the next challenge is to grow our intentionality. We find this in the last two verses. We're going to look at 19 and 20. There's one main challenge that that Jesus gives to his disciples, followed up by three actions or three verbs that follow it up. And the main challenge is to make disciples. So we're going to read 19 and 20 together. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, here's the reality. If, if Jesus has authority over everything, if he's the king over it all, and, and one day everyone will bow at his knee, and, and if he left the earth, and he empowered us, he sent us, and, and we're his plan A for discipleship, and this is his end goal, it only makes sense for us to make and send disciples in light of the ultimate end, Right? Let me break this down a bit. So if, if, uh, if you have something or you see something monumental coming in the future, you act in line with that. Let me give you a, a quick little example. So five years ago, my wife and I were dating in Austin, Texas, and uh, we caught word that there was going to be a Starbucks grand opening for the very first time down the street. And the deal was, is the first hundred people in line at 5 a.m. on that Saturday was going to get free Starbucks for a year. So you know we'd be getting there, Right. And so we cleared our schedules for that day about a month in advance. We're like, I'm not working that day. We're going to be there. We went to dinner that night a little bit early so we could get there on time, in line on Friday night. I uh, packed my bag up and packed my laptop with, with DVDs in it so we could watch movies. I packed books. Carrie packed snacks. She packed blankets. We got there early the evening before, and, and we sat on the sidewalk for like eight or nine hours to wait for Saturday morning when this Starbucks was going to open at 5 a.m. in the morning. And when that morning came, uh, about 15 minutes before 4.45, the manager gets up comes out and he says, okay, everyone stand up. I'm going to hand out tickets to the first hundred people. And so he started handing them all out one by one by one by one. And Carrie and I started getting nervous and realizing either we can't count or maybe some people cut in line because as the manager got closer and closer to us, we were number 101 and 102 in the line. And I have been in counseling ever since. Here's the good news, the redeeming fact of that story is that we had some friends that were in front of us. They got two free tickets, and so they gave us one, and we got to split it. So that's gospel generosity right there. Um, That's not the point. The point is, is, is we had this, this hope of this prize that was coming one day. This, this ultimate end in getting free Starbucks for a year. How amazing would that be? And so we acted with absolute intentionality. We sacrificed what we needed to sacrifice. We did what we needed, 
We did what we thought we needed to do to be able to get there in time. And for us, Jesus is challenging us. And in this passage, he's challenging the disciples. Hey, I'm the king. I'm forever going to be the king. And and there will one day be a a time where every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to bow their knee to me. And therefore, if that's going to happen, then what's going to govern our lives now has to do with that. And so therefore, we must make and send disciples. We're living in light of the end. And we're making and sending disciples, not just here in Omaha, but in uh, all nations. And it's going to take some effort, and it's going to take some intentionality. And our intentionality, uh, Jesus kind of unpacks three specific ways that we can do that. He gives three verbs, or three commands that we can do. First uh, is to go. You notice in verse 19, it says, go therefore and make disciples. He was telling his disciples that, hey, intentionally Listen to me, hear from me, know where I'm sending you, and when you get to the place where you're supposed to be, then you need to invest in those people. Tell them about Jesus and love them. Well, now going for us in an applicational sense doesn't mean that we have to go across the globe. You can go to your neighbor across the street, or for some of us, it might mean as we are going to work, we're going to invest in and disciple our coworkers. Now, at the same time, he might send us across the globe. And so if Jesus says, go somewhere, we go. That's why uh, Jordan, our college intern, and a couple of our college students are in Thailand right now, sharing Jesus with people in Thailand, because God said, go. That's why a couple months ago, uh, Andrew uh, let us know that that he was going to Cambodia and Thailand to be able to to look at potential long-term partnerships, because we want to make and send disciples there, too. Maybe one day we'll be able to plant a church there and they'll be making and sending disciples back to us to be able to plant a church here. We have this, we have to follow this command to go, to make disciples here and there. Where Jesus tells us to go, we go. The second command is to baptize. Now, baptism is this outward symbol of someone identifying with Jesus for the first time. And so the idea of of baptizing and making disciples, a lot of times when we think about disciples, we think, okay, let me find some young Padawan learner that I'm going to teach a few things, and and I'm going to make them more Christianly, right? And this is saying the people that you're making disciples of are not baptized yet. They're not identifying with Jesus. So that means there's this command for us to go to people who don't know Jesus invest in them with the hopes that they will place their faith in him, that they will get baptized, that we will see them come into the family of God. The third thing that it tells us to do is to teach, or Jesus tells us to teach. Now, it's interesting because um, he says to teach everything um, I've commanded you to, or to observe everything I've commanded you to do. I don't, it says something like that. My, my verses are, but it tells us to observe what is taught, basically. And, and the interesting thing about this is that when it comes to teaching, a lot of times we think of a transfer of knowledge, that, that we just learn some facts, we learn some things, and, and we're good to go. And that is not the case with this. If it was just a, a, transfer, or a, a transfer of knowledge, it'd be kind of like how a lot of us study for tests in college. We crammed the night before, we learned some words, we memorized some things, we regurgitated on, the, on a test the next day, and then a week later we forgot everything. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about learning something that is taught in a way that has a moral implication. In other words, you will change. You will observe what Jesus says 
If you're observing what he's teaching, you're actually, your life is going to look different. And so if you're discipling someone and that someone has a, an anger problem, the hope is that after an amount of time that Jesus will penetrate their heart and figure out the root seat of that anger and they will be less angry over time. If you're discipling someone who's a pathological liar, they have a tendency to lie. The idea is that over some time, Jesus will transform their heart and they will turn into someone who loves truth and tells the truth and feels open and honest to be able to do that. If you're, if you're discipling someone who has some sort of addiction to, say, pornography, the idea is that over some time, they will get to the point where they are freed from that addiction. They are observing the teachings. Now, can I ask, for those of us in the room, as you assess your own discipleship journey, have you noticed that you have started to observe Jesus' commandments more and more over the years? Like, are you observing more now than you did a few years ago? Has he actually changed your heart, transformed your heart, and changed your desires in a way that, that you are bent toward worshiping him outwardly more and more with your life? As we think of that, imagine what it would look like if, if there were people who didn't know Jesus and we could, we could see them, hundreds of them in Omaha, come to faith in Jesus, be baptized, and then to see them observe the teachings of Jesus, come full-fledged disciples and disciple-makers, and then we could send these people out. And those people, not just us, but those people would be the next generation of disciple-makers, the next generation of city group leaders, the next generation of church planners and missionaries to go across the globe. This is exciting stuff. This could actually change our city and actually change our world. Now, before I transition into a, a couple specific applications, I want to throw out a little bit of a disclaimer because some of us in here are already overwhelmed at the fact of our own busyness and you're thinking, okay, there is no way I can actually be uh, intentional and like do a whole bunch more stuff. And I just want to throw out the disclaimer that I'm not telling you that you're going to have to start a whole bunch of new Bible studies and you're going to have to start Christian nonprofits and be able to change the world that way. That's not the idea. The idea is what it's talking about is, is that we need to grow in our intentionality. So hear this quick story. It illustrates this, illustrates this well. So a new convert in Christ uh, came up to Martin Luther, the father of the Great Reformation. Happened 500 years ago, and this is a true story. He came up and he asked Martin Luther, he said, hey, I have just become a Christian. How am I to faithfully serve the Lord? And Luther asked him, well, what do you do? He said, I'm a cobbler. I make shoes. To which Luther said, well, then make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. Could it be that the best step to be intentional in disciple-making is to take the things that we're already doing and doing those things for the glory of Jesus? Uh, to take the relationships, the friendships that you already have and love them like Jesus loved you. For people in different occupations, go to work with the idea of 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 treating that like you're glorifying God in everything you do. Teachers, uh, you know, as you go to work, love your students, teach them well, and, and love people well like Jesus loved you. For those doctors and nurses in the room, in the healthcare world, love your patients and your people well and see health happen. If you work in, in customer service, uh, try hard, really hard, and love the people well that are coming in, Right? If you're an environmental scientist, love the earth well and take care of it, steward it well. As we think about this kind of 
living, it, it gives us a new picture of how the earth could actually look a little bit more like heaven, right? Now, when it comes to our church specifically, in, in pursuing this discipling lifestyle, we realize that there needs to be some structure, and there needs to be a community aspect to this. And so uh, we want to be intentional as a church, and as we've sought and, and prayed God about this, uh, we feel God calling us to two separate structures in which discipleship can happen mainly in our church. And one is city groups, and one is huddles. If you're new, this will be a, a great crash course, an introduction to, to how we live life in our church. So first is city groups. <clears throat> We've given announcements about this, but, but I'm going to say it again. Our desire is that every single person in here is in a city group. We want every one of you to go there. And here's how discipleship is going to happen in a city group. So first of all, we know that discipleship has to happen in community. You need a family to do life with. And our, and our city groups are, are first, they're a family. They're a spiritual family. Our hope is that when you go into a city group, that, that you will feel loved and you will develop deep relationships where you can love one another where you can serve one another, where you can pray for one another, where you can encourage one another. <clears throat> These city groups that we have, uh, we have them meet every week, and you come together, and as you study the Bible, as you uh, cook for each other, as you show hospitality to each other, as you love one another, you will be discipling one another. You will grow as a disciple. That's the first aspect, the family aspect to our city group. The second aspect is the mission aspect. So this outward-focused mission is a huge aspect of our discipleship. So we asked our city groups, or we, we call our city groups, to identify a specific area of need in our city, a mission field to adopt, if you will, to, to live on mission together. Our city group did this just this last Thursday, where we gathered on Thursday night. We discussed what some of our passions were, and we found out that a lot of us shared the same passion or compassion for people. We live right over here on the other, a lot of us live right over here on the other side of UNMC. And so uh, we've come with the idea that most likely we're going to um, be able to invest in some international students, maybe even some refugee families. And the idea in that mission is that we're taking people who, who are away from their home, who don't have a home, and we're becoming a second family for them. We're caring for them, loving for them, providing uh, needs in that we might give them a ride, maybe help them buy groceries, do all these things. And in that, two things are happening in the discipleship process. One is that it's making us aware of God's heart for people. And so we're being stirred on in our discipleship because we're being formed as mission-centered disciples. And the second thing is, is that we're investing in some of these people. And our hope is that some of these international students might come to know Jesus that we could share that with them. They could dive into our community and hopefully even one day as they maybe get baptized and become believers, that we could send them. Maybe they'll go back to their home country and they could be people who make and send disciples right there. So that's the city group portion of what we do. The second one is huddles. Now, the, these huddles, let me just explain them to you really quickly. They're gatherings of three-ish people. You can have two, you can have four people. But they're gatherings of, of three people, and they're an opportunity to dive in deeper with, with Jesus and really with each other and, and, and push each other in this way. And in our huddles, we're committed to three specific things. The first one is we're committed to Bible study. We believe that the Bible is a living, active word of God. 
and it's able to change lives through the power of the Spirit. And, and so we want to be people who study the Bible throughout the week. And so when we come together for this huddle, this one-hour block of time with people, with you know, maybe two or three other people that are same gender, we're going to come together and we're going to share how God has been speaking to us through the Bible. Then from there, uh, we're going to take a portion of time to confess sin together. Now, it could be a little bit scary to some of you, to the thought of confessing sin, but I just want to reiterate that we are a community that's under grace. And so we can come and not be ashamed, not feel scared to, to be able to share sin or to confess sin, but we can come with humility knowing that those sins have been forgiven and they're covered by Jesus. And so when we share that sin, we're not met with judgment from the other people in our group, but the other people in the group actually give gospel encouragement. They give encouragement in reminding us of the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. That's the confessing sin part, and the last part is a prayer part. Now, we could pray for hundreds of things, but specifically in our huddles, uh, we want to pray for people who don't yet know Jesus because we want them to experience the life and the joy and the amazing thing that it is to have Jesus as our Savior. And so we're going to read the the Bible, study the Bible, we're going to confess sin, and we're going to pray together in these huddles. And these huddles are going to happen within our city group structure. And it's cool because uh, I I have heard, I believe that by this next week, three of our five city groups are already, already going to have started huddles by this coming week. And I think the other two are on their way too. So it's kind of fun to see that happen. Now, our invitation for all of you is that you get into a city group and then you get into a huddle. We believe that these individual structures, they're not magic, but we believe that committing to structures like this, community like this, is going to turn our church into a church that is making and sending disciples. And the hope is that they would multiply, that one huddle would turn into two, which would turn into four, then it would turn into eight. Same with city groups. We'd have a city group, and we'd raise up leaders, and then one city group w- would send off another uh, group of leaders, and it'd multiply into two, and then four, and then eight. It's the same thing with churches. We're one church right now, but we don't want to stay one church. We want to we plant more churches. We want to plant another church. Maybe plant a church across the globe. We want to be serious about making and sending disciples, and we believe that we can do that through huddles. We believe that we can do that through city groups and through church planting. So, as we sit here, as we wrap up this time, uh, and as we think about just the reality that, that there were 11 uneducated men that were sitting on the side of the mountain about ready to hear an outrageous call from Jesus, and in the same way we're sitting here, you know, 130 or 40 of us or however many are in here, uh, and we've received the call to make and send disciples, and we might feel a little bit overwhelmed and not really know what to do. I want us to end with Jesus' very last phrase in verse 20, to just cement this into our minds. Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Providence, Jesus is with us. As we're thinking about sharing our faith with our neighbor, Jesus is with us. As, as we get into a discipleship relationship and we don't know what to do, Jesus is with us. As we take on the challenge to, to, to multiply city groups throughout the city, Jesus is with us. As we think about uh, making disciples in Thailand and Cambodia and across the globe, Jesus, he's with us. He has promised that he is going to be with us to the very end of the age. So let our confidence grow in him as we aim to make and send disciples from Omaha to all nations.
So what I want to do is we're going to split you guys up into groups and allow you to discuss this. On your program that you got, there's a couple questions that you can discuss. And, and they're really application-driven. I want you to wrestle through what God uh, might be speaking to you. So at this time, for about six or seven minutes, I'm going to have you circle up with four or five people around you. I want you to process through those questions, and then we'll transition into a time of prayer that I'll uh, lead you to in just a second. So you feel free to turn around your chairs, grab some people around you, and uh, let's, let's start discussing this stuff.